Excellent. Come on, can we give Jesus a big shout of praise? Come on, he's so good. Fantastic. Excellent. You guys can grab your seats. Thanks so much, worship team. You guys did an, didn't they do an incredible job? What an atmosphere that's been created. And uh, But you know, the atmosphere in here has just been beautiful. There's been such a sense of God's spirit. And uh, you know, that a big part of that is because of the men that have come back from Emerge. Because they haven't come back the same, they've come back with something different. And uh, I just love that we're part of a church that just believes in men, that wants to release men to be the men they've been called to be, to love their wives the way we're meant to love them, but also to be strong and, and, and just go after the things of God. And, you know, I, 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 I'm part of C3. I'm based at C3 in San Diego. Uh, my family goes to the central campus, but I actually travel full-time all around the world. I've been traveling full-time uh, as an evangelist for about seven. This is my eighth year. Um, I preach at one of our campuses about every five or six weeks. And, and I want to tell you, I've never seen what I've seen at C3 anywhere around the world. And, and, and I'm not just saying that I'm a guy that's in different churches, great churches every single week. But one of the things that I've seen that I've never seen in any other church is, is and this is not against uh, uh, women because I think uh, females are powerful and amazing. And, and uh, you know, but so often when you go to churches, when it comes to the prayer meetings, it's a group of females that are praying. And, and, and that's awesome that, that, you know, women are rising up and, and being who they're called to be. But, but in C3, like I've never seen before, we, our prayer meeting at North has about 130 men at 5.30 every Thursday. Our central campus has over 100 men praying every week. Our, our, same with East and South. And I just think when men rise up and become who they're called to be, everything goes well. And uh, so I'm excited. Can we give our God just a big round of applause? And uh, it's cool to be here. Have I got a timer? Uh, sorry, this, this part doesn't count now. That's good. Good. Got a bit of free time there. And, uh, and uh, oh, but now it's way different to what you told me. All right. Okay. That's still way different, but that's all right. It's good to be here. And uh, God's going to do some good things. Uh, I, uh, I um, uh, like I said, I've been traveling all over the world. And, you know, my story is I grew up in Australia. You probably realize I sound a little different. Uh, g'day, mate. Uh, from Australia. Uh, but my parents divorced when I was about uh, five years old. Uh, my dad did a whole heap of drugs. Thank you. My, my dad did a whole heap of drugs. Uh, my mum did a heap of drugs. Uh, most of my aunties did a heap of drugs, uh, aunties and uncles. Uh, even some of my grandparents did drugs. Uh, you know you're in trouble when granddad smokes bongs, okay? That's a bad start to life. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I sort of like do that joke to judge how kind of naughty the crowd is. And you guys are way up there. Like seriously, represent Salt Lake City. We're, we're going to have fun together today. Um, and who knows, you're allowed to laugh in church. We don't have to get too religious. And, uh, and so I followed in my dad's footsteps. And at about the age of uh, 12 or 13, uh, I started to smoke cigarettes, uh, marijuana, uh, binge drinking. At 15, I started to inject uh, amphetamines. Uh, at 16, I, I took an acid trip where I actually overdosed. Uh, for about three hours, I was unconscious and I was tormented by demons. I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't a believer. Uh, that encounter uh, left me with what psychologists would have diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis, 
where from 16 to 19 years old, uh, the television would speak to me, the radio would speak to me. Uh, every day I'd hear a voice telling me that no one loved me, that I should kill myself. And, and uh, I almost took my life at 19. Uh, I'm going to share that part of my story at the end, the last 10 minutes. It's a bit of an out there kind of story. Uh, but, but long story short, I had an auntie that prayed for me for 17 years that I'd one day encounter the love of Jesus Christ. And, and I want to tell you, don't ever give up on the people you're praying for. Because for 17 years, it looked like nothing was happening. But one day, something happened. And, and, and people saw it in one day. But one lady knew that it wasn't one day. But it was actually 17 years of sowing prayer and believing. And, and, and But then that one day come at the age of 23. Uh, when I turned 23, my auntie sent me a birthday card. And it had words about Jesus and Bible scripture. And uh, if I be honest, I, I read it. I'm still part. I'm nightclubbing, I'm doing drugs, I read the card, I think, yep, she's a Christian crackpot, and, and sort of just threw the card to the side, and about two weeks after my 23rd birthday, my mum rings me, and I'd moved cities, and, and she says, hey, you never even rang your auntie to say thank you for the card she sent, and, and so it was a Saturday night, I was getting ready to go to a nightclub, I was dressed ready to go, I'd organised to score drugs at this nightclub, and, and I think to myself, I'll just quickly ring my auntie just to get my mum off my back, and I pick up the phone. Uh, to this lady that, that, that has been praying for 17 years. And, and I hear her voice as she says, hello, hello. And the only way I could describe it is as soon as I heard her voice, it was literally like heaven opened up. And the love of the Father tangibly came from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And I was so overwhelmed in this moment, like two minutes before I wasn't even thinking about God, but I was so overwhelmed that as soon as I spoke back to her and said hello, I literally broke down and began to cry. And things started coming out of my heart, which really was repentance. That things like when I was a little boy, I never wanted to be a junkie. I never wanted to be who I am today. I wanted to be someone that made a difference. And, and in that moment, that auntie helped me to pray a prayer. And for the first time, I invited Jesus Christ into my heart and my my life. And I went to a church the next day, just like this one. And I walked into the 6 p.m. service. And for the first time, I publicly made a decision for Jesus. And, and, and I was fully born again. I, my spirit came alive to God, but I still struggled with this 10-year drug addiction. See, because who knows that you can love God and be fully born again, but still have stuff going on in your life. That's called being a human being. And it's why we need a Savior. His name is Jesus. And and so I, uh, uh, but I heard the, the pastor, or look, I'll speak a bit American, pastor, uh, I heard the pastor say, see, I'm a little bilingual, uh, <laughs> un poquito, uh, and I heard the pastor say that there was nothing God couldn't do, and as a two-week-old Christian, I went home and still addicted to drugs, but loved God, and I said, God, the, the pastor said there's nothing that you can't do. I want you to take this addiction away from me. And, and I started to hit the ground and, and call out to God. I said, when will you do it? And faith began to rise. See, faith began to rise because a lady had been praying for 17 years. And, and as faith began to rise, and, and I said, God, when will you do it? When will you take it away? As clear as anything, I hear this voice that says 726. I sort of stood up from praying a little startled and thinking, what, what in the world does that mean? And and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know what, am I going to wake up at exactly 7.26? Like, what does that mean? And, and as I was thinking about what does it mean, I, 
I was in my living room. I caught a glimpse of my, the clock in my kitchen, and I saw that it was exactly 7.26. And it was at that moment I knew that I knew that I knew that I would never need drugs again, never need cigarettes again, never had a desire, never had a withdrawal. See, the thing I love is what took the devil, what took the devil 23 years of his downward, destructive, demonic cycle, just took God one word, one word to say it's done, one word to say it's over. See, you might be here today and maybe you're struggling with anxiety or depression or an addiction or or you've been hurt and you feel like you're going around the same mountain. I want to tell you right now, one word from heaven can literally change everything. One word from heaven can break the strongest chain. You know, as I lay on the floor that night and the Holy Spirit just filled me with His power, God began to speak to me about a a few things that were going to happen in my life. And uh, before I show you that, let me just show you a photo of what I looked like uh, as a drugo. There I am uh, and making a cake. I, I can't tell you what's in the cake. Uh, so I promise no one's ever laughed that much at this joke. I promise you. I don't know what's going on in Salt Lake, but I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Anyway, yeah, good. Take that down. It's embarrassing. Okay. But I was pretty messed up, and, and then I, I get set free, and I land on the floor, and God begins to speak to me about five things that were going to happen in my life, and all of them came to pass. I was a brand new Christian. He just started telling me these things, and I don't have time to share them all now, but one of them is really cool. Uh, the night before, I was in a, a Bible study, just six of us in this new Christians class, and I'm like, two weeks I've been in the church, and, and, and all of a sudden, these young adults start turning up to the church, and they're dressed in fancy dress costumes. And I said to the guy next to me doing the study, I said, what's going on? And he said, oh, it's just uh, one of the girls from church. She's having her 23rd birthday party and it's fancy dress. She's just using the room next door. And the next minute, the girl having the party, she walked into the room where we were doing the Bible study just to get something out of a cupboard. And she walks in and she's dressed as Barbie. You know, Barbie doll. She, she had like Barbie hair, Barbie skirt, Barbie bag, Barbie shoes. You know, she walks in. I start drooling a little bit. Uh, I said, how you doing? Uh, she ignored me because I looked like the cake guy and that was the end of my Barbie experience. I've been in counseling ever since. No, not really. But she went off and had her party and, and uh, you know, that was the end of that. The next night I'm having this crazy God encounter and God sets me free of drugs, 726. He told me my whole family would come to know Jesus and many other things. And, and then he speaks to me and he says, Lucas, the girl you saw last night, she's the girl you're going to marry. I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. God, send me. I will go. And so the next day I got up and I changed my name to Ken. And no, I didn't really. And uh, it, it took her a year and a half uh, to, to, to come to her senses and see what she was missing out on. <laughs> it took me a year and a half to be even close to being ready for a godly, functional relationship. We've now been married uh, 17 and a half years. And uh, I got a photo of what Barbie looked like that night. Let's put her up on the screen. Can you open that for me? And, and then let me quickly show you what happens when you marry Barbie. <laughs> I actually sent the wrong photo because they're 12 and 13 now. Um, but they look way cuter there. So anyway, uh, I might keep showing that one from now on just forever. They could be like 25 and I'll keep showing that one. Um, but I, I want to, uh, you know, God's just been so good. And, and I want to look at some scripture. And like I said, I'm going to share my story the last 10 minutes, the crazy part of my story. But 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9, verse 1, 
Uh, before I read it, there, there is, uh, let me give you the backstory to what's happening here. Is Saul was the first king of Israel. Uh, but Saul really gave in to his own sinful nature. He, 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 he gave in to the flesh and his life ends with the enemy surrounding him. And rather than him allowing them to kill him and make sport of him, he falls on his sword. And so Saul, the first king of Israel, is dead. His son Jonathan on the same day is also dead. Jonathan happened to be David's best friend. They loved each other deeply. And now eventually David becomes the second king of Israel. And one of the first things that he does is found here in 2 Samuel chapter 9.1. It says here that uh, David asked, Is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And rather than read the whole chapter, let me just tell you what it says in my own words, but it's true to the text. A servant named Zeba, and, and, and Zeba says, well, actually, Jonathan has a son. His name is Mephibosheth, and he lives in a place called Lodabar. And Mephibosheth is crippled in both of his feet. Uh, this young crippled boy is brought before King David, and he's literally petrified because he thinks he's about to be executed, which was common practice. When a new king took over, he would kill everyone from the previous king. And so he's petrified, but David says, fear not, Mephibosheth. He says, I'm actually going to give you back the land that your grandfather Saul lost. I'm going to give you servants to work the land. And the coolest part, he says, from now on, you will sit at my table as if you were one of the king's sons. And the thing about this story is the plan of God for the church this series we're doing, 24-hour witness, the, the plan of God for the church is actually wrapped up and hidden in this particular story. Uh, I'm going to need some volunteers. If Rich could come, that would be great. And then, sir, can I get you to help me as well? And then, sir, I need someone to be a grandfather. Could you come and help me, please? I'm sorry. Okay, that would be fantastic. And, and I might get a... And you could come as well. That would be great. If you could jump over this side. Actually, no, you guys stay here. Rich, you go over that side. And that'd be perfect. You say that? All right, good. We've got Grandfather Saul. Thank you. We've got his son, Jonathan. And then we've got his son, Mephibosheth. I haven't worked it perfectly, but just work with me. And and then over here, I chose Rich deliberately uh, to be David because the Bible says David was handsome. Okay? And... And hang on, hang on. We are in church, so I've got to tell the truth. Uh, Rich has heard this message on podcast, and he asked me before the service if he could be David. Uh, So there you go. Uh, I'm like, okay, this hasn't happened before, but we're in Salt Lake, so let's do it. All right. I'm just messing with you. Okay, three generations, okay? We've got the the first, all right? I want you to think the first, the first of three generations, the first. Saul. We often think if you've read the text, that you could easily think that Saul wasn't God's chosen king because he did such a bad job. But actually, if you look at the start of the story, God chose Saul. God wanted Saul to rule, reign, have authority and dominion and be a great blessing to Israel. And there were little moments where he lived up to that, but most of the time he didn't. And so Saul, the first, the first of this generation, is a picture of the first man, the first Adam who God also wanted to rule, reign, have authority and dominion. But Adam also gave in to his own sinful nature and lost everything that God wanted him to have. The first of this generation, Saul, is a picture of the first Adam. The second in Jonathan is actually a picture of the second Adam, or the Bible calls him the last Adam in Jesus Christ. See, everybody in that day knew that it was Jonathan's birthright to inherit the kingdom. He was Saul's son. But if you go back a few chapters, you'll find this moment where Jonathan comes before David and who in this story, David represents God the Father. But Jonathan comes before David and he actually lays down his robe and his belt and his sword. 
And what he's saying to David is, although the kingdom is mine to claim, I recognize what the Spirit of God is doing, and I lay down what is mine for the good of God the Father and for the good of everybody else. See, Jonathan is a picture of Jesus Christ, who could have come to this earth 2,000 years ago to claim back what was his. But rather than claim it back, he came to lay down his very life for the good of God the Father and for the good of all of us. Three generations, we have the first Adam, second, we have the the last Adam. And then Mephibosheth represents everybody to come after Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says he was living in a place called Lodabar, which means place of desolation. It says he was crippled in both of his feet. In other words, he couldn't get to where he needed to be. You know, it wasn't his fault that he was crippled. When his grandfather Saul lost the kingdom and the nanny had to flee, she dropped him at the age of five and that's why he's crippled. So he's actually crippled because of his grandfather. Symbolic of a generation that are crippled by something called sin that stops them from being where they're meant to be, which is an intimate relationship with the Father. They're trapped and living in desolation. And in a sense, it's not even their fault. It goes back to the very first man in Adam. And now every human is born with this crippling disease called sin. But then the greatest part of the story, and we read the verse, is where David, uh, representing God the Father, he says, Who can I bless? from the house of Saul for the sake of Jonathan. But when you understand what I've just sort of painted, what he's really saying is, who can I bless from humanity? Who that's trapped and living in desolation? Who that's been crippled and broken by sin? Who can I invite to sit at my table as a son or daughter to give an inheritance to for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ, who bled and died on a cross? Let's give these guys a big round of applause. Thanks so much. See, if it's the full plan of God, my mind races a bit because we had God the Father, we had God the Son, where's Holy Spirit? And then my mind also races a bit because the king, he lived in the rich part of town. Mephibosheth, he lived in the poor part of town. So there's great geographical distance between the two. How did the young crippled boy get to the king's palace? It's not a, a, a too far a stretch, I believe, to, to, to we could easily come to the conclusion we know the king wanted him to appear. It would be common practice for one of the king's servants to make that thing happen. The servant in the story, Zeba, who knew everything about this young boy, knew everything about the family, where he lived, who he was, I believe it was Zeba that went and got him and brought him to the palace. But if you look at the name of what Zeba's name means, it actually means army or Lord's army. Because it's the Lord's army that is to leave the palace to go to the place of desolation to find people that are crippled and broken by sin and carry them to their destiny and their inheritance in the house of God. You say, where's Holy Spirit? Well, Acts 1.8 says the role of the Holy Spirit in my own words is that we would have dunamis dynamic power to be effective witnesses wherever we go. So where was the Holy Spirit in this story? He was on the Lord's army, anointing and empowering the Lord's army to carry someone to their destiny. See, I'm so thankful that I had an auntie that wasn't just into doing fellowship every week, although it's incredibly important. I'm thankful I had an auntie that wasn't just into listening to the Word of God every week, although it's incredibly important. I'm thankful that I had an auntie 
that knew that she was part of the Lord's army, that she was anointed and empowered by heaven. And even if it took 17 years, she was going to carry this crippled, broken, messed up boy until I found my place sitting at the king's table, partaking of destiny and inheritance. I want to give you three quick things that my auntie did practically to bring me to the place of salvation. There's sort of three things that Jesus does. I'll explain the sort of at the end. The first thing she did practically is number one, she came down to where we're at. See, when I was at my worst, about 15, 16, injecting a whole lot of amphetamine, there were times that I'd stayed awake for three nights without any sleep. And after three nights of no sleep, and I remember some of these occasions, I'd licked my lips compulsively so much because my brain is going so fast from the amphetamine that my lips had actually become giant scabs. I'd scratched myself with paranoia and it was scabs and marks on my face and arms. After three days of no sleep, you're white and pasty, you look like death warmed up. You're a scatterbrain and you hardly make any sense at all. But see, here's the deal. I can't remember a time that my auntie came to visit me while I was in that state and I felt worse because of her visit. Because she never rode in on her Christian high horse telling me how bad I was, telling me how I was a terrible sinner. I just needed to look in the mirror to know how bad life was. But every time she came, she came down to where I was at. She spoke a language that I could understand. She came down to where I was at so that she could help take me to where I needed to be. You know, the great apostle Paul said, I became all things to all men that I might win some. You know, I said, my auntie did these things and so does Jesus. I'm so thankful that we don't serve a God that stayed up in heaven that just stayed up in heaven and sent a message out, hey, when you get your life up to this level, then we can start to do relationship. When you can jump through all the hoops, when you can tick all the boxes, when you can obey all the commands, then we can, no, 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 we serve a God that said, let me come down to your brokenness. Let me come down to your addiction. Let me come down to your mess. Let me come down to your humanity so that I can help take you to where you need to be. The second thing my auntie did is she simply embarrassed us with generosity. You know, Matthew 5, 16, guys have got it. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, it's, not, it's actually not rocket science. Just keep letting people see your good deeds and they'll eventually give praise to God in heaven. You know, my auntie to this day has still never been married. She'd probably be about 60 years old, I think, maybe 58. She has always had a very humble income. But when I was a little boy in a single mom family, I can't remember a time she turned up to our house empty-handed. There was always either some chocolates or a beautiful card or, or, or a children's Bible story. There was always something. And whenever we'd move houses as a single mom family, we had no money to get the moving guys to come and do it. We had no money to get the cleaners to come in and fix the house. It was do it yourself. And of all my mum's brothers and sisters, this particular, and my mum has six uh, brothers and sisters, of all my mum's brothers and sisters and friends, she was always the first one to arrive and the last one to leave. Because she just made a decision that she would embarrass us with generosity until the day that we gave praise to God in heaven. See, you can, you can be generous to people with your words. 
You can be generous with your hands, your actions, and you can be generous with your wallet. When you, you can't do that to everyone, but if there's two or three people that you just say, for these ones, I'm going to embarrass them with generosity. I'm telling you, eventually, they'll be giving praise to God in heaven because of your generosity. You know, I said that Jesus does these things as well. Romans 5.8, it says this, that, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while I was that, 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 that boy that society called a junkie with scabby lips, while I was that boy that was stealing, cheating, and lying, it was Christ then that said, I'm going to go to earth and die on a cross so that Lucas Connell can have the gift that he doesn't deserve, the gift that he hasn't earned, the gift that he'll be unwrapping in a million years' time called eternal life. He embarrassed us with generosity. Last point, I'm going to share this part of my story. Just if the keyboarder could come, that'd be cool. But the last thing my auntie did, it's the thing that I'm the most thankful for, is number three, she simply prayed. For 17 years, she continued to appear before heaven. You know, I, I love the Holy Spirit, and I've always been in a ch church that, you know, would have more of an emphasis on encounter and Holy Spirit. But my auntie, she was more of a, a traditional Baptist, and and, you know, so she never spoke in any other language. And, you know, she never had a keyboard in the background when she prayed. And that, that was the cue. But that's no, okay. Yeah. I, just, <coughs> I knew you weren't ready. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, she just would each night get on her hands and knees. And she's actually told me the prayer that she prayed word for word for 17 years. It was the same prayer. It went like this. She said, God, I see what the devil's doing in his life. I pray that you'd make him a giant killer. For 17 years, she prayed that same prayer. You know, of all of my other cousins, I was leading them all astray, getting them into drugs and all sorts of things. But for 17 years, she prayed that I'd become a giant killer. You know, the last seven, eight years, and I could tell you even of things before that, but the last seven, eight years, I've been traveling, living by faith, going all over the world as an itinerant preacher. I've seen... More than 10,000 people give their lives to Jesus Christ. I have seen thousands upon thousands get free of addictions, anxiety, depression, hurts, abuse. I have seen tens of thousands of people weep in the presence of God after I've spoken. And I don't say that to make myself sound good. But I'm just trying to show you that all I'm doing is riding the wave of 17 years of prayer. This story that I'm about to share now, I've got to tell you, it's a bit out there. It's a bit crazy. If you're new to church, it's going to be a bit wild. Even if you're not, it's my story and it's crazy. But it's just the way that I perceived it to happen. I was 16 years old. I was with this girl and we were going to take an acid trip together. If you don't know, acid is a hallucinogenic but I already know by the way you guys all laughed, you already know that. <laughs> but for the one or two people in the room that don't know, it is a hallucinogenic, a mind-altering drug, causes you to see things that aren't really there. We went to this house to buy the drug, and the guys were much older than us, and, and, and the, the bedroom that we went to, where the dealer was, <coughs> and a lot of other people doing drugs, it, it was a very dark environment. We walked in, there were pictures of demons, from bands in the early 90s like Slayer, Root of All Evil, 
there were satanic symbols and it was very dark and that was sort of the people that I hung around with at that particular time. They were all into death metal, that kind of thing. And so we went and we bought the drug and the guy said, well, why don't you just take the drug here with us tonight? So we're in this very dark environment and I take this acid trip and after about half an hour, I end up unconscious on the bedroom floor. I can't remember the rest of the night in a physical kind of realm. I went somewhere completely different. And all of a sudden, I wasn't religious. I didn't grow up in a religious home. All of a sudden, a darkness came over me that I could never, ever properly articulate. And then this being stood before me in my mind's eye. And he literally dripped with evil. And I knew who this was, or at least who he represented. And he, and he stood before me, dripped with evil, and he said, Lucas, you're dead. Nobody likes you. Nobody loves you. Nobody wants your soul. Who do you want to give your soul to? And then like a lawyer, he painted a picture of every wrong thing I'd ever done. Not just the things that I'd done, but every wrong thought that I'd ever had. And I was always a good talker. But the thing that was the most tormenting about this is I knew there was nothing I could say I was guilty. You might say, well, yeah, you were a pretty bad person, but here's the deal. Every single human being is guilty because we all have a sinful nature. And the only thing that makes you not guilty is if you've received the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But in this moment, I didn't know of such thing and... I kept trying to talk and like a lawyer is painting this picture and it kept coming back to this question. Who do you want to give your soul to? No one else wants it. And this, this evil was like, I'll take it. I'm the only one that wants it. And there was a spiritual fight going on for my eternity. And I didn't know what to do, but I knew not to let go. And eventually I went to this next phase now where it's just total darkness and I was tormented like I really could never properly explain. Ridiculed, mocked, teased, Laughed at, like I was the butt of every joke in the entire world. And then finally I went to this third and final stage, where now I'd, I could see my body, excuse me, and I was thrown into this disgusting pit. And I watched these demon creatures literally swoop down, ripping my flesh apart. It was like I was a discarded piece of meat that nobody wanted. And as I was swooping down, they were ripping me apart. I remember screaming at 16 thinking, this can't be it. This can't be where I stay. I'm just 16 years old. And finally, as I was just about no more, I woke up on that bedroom floor. I got out of that house as quick as you can imagine. I don't know why, but I remember this part so clearly because this is a long time ago now. It's, well, I think it's 25 years ago. I remember leaning on my bunk beds. It's about one in the morning. And I'm leaning on my bunk bed, and I'm 16, and I think to myself, I think, man, that felt like the realest thing that I've ever encountered. Like, it was realer than real. And then I thought, it, it, it couldn't be real. It's just what they call a bad trip. Two weeks later, I'm out with some friends. We're about to go into this bar. It's called the Cantina Bar. Meet some friends there. I'm sitting in the car in the back seat on the driver's side. My friend is in the middle back seat. I'm minding my own business. I'm now not on drugs. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, my friend in the middle, he turns to me randomly. He says, I heard you met the devil the other week. 
And as soon as he said those words, that same evil came over my whole being. So much so that just for a moment, I was literally paralyzed in fear. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. I couldn't answer his question. He's asked me about meeting the devil at the front of the cantina bar. Then he looks at me and he looks into me. And he says, guess who's going to be at the cantina bar tonight? And it was literally like the devil speaking through him saying, I'm still here. I got out of that car and ran down the street like a crazy person. But for the next two or three years of my life, I had what psychologists would have diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis. Because I'd think stuff and the television would answer my thoughts. The radio would answer my thoughts. I'd have conversations with this evil as I lay in bed or walk around at school. The thing that makes it even crazier than it already is, is this voice convinced me that who I'd actually met that night was not the devil, but I'd met God Almighty. The one that created the universe and controls all things. And every single day I'd go to school and pretend everything was normal. But that little voice would say, no one likes you, no one loves you, you should kill yourself. And every now and again, I'd ask this question. And I would say in my mind, I'd say, well, hang on. If you want me to kill myself, but, but you're God that controls all things, then why didn't I just die that night when I was on the trip? And as sharp as anything, the voice would say, because I hate you so much, I'm going to torment you here on earth and then take you and torment you for the whole of eternity. There were so many nights from 16 to 19, I never ever told a human being about what was going on. But there were so many nights that I literally cried myself to sleep because I believed I'd met God, but He took pleasure in my torment. Finally, I got to 19 and I made a decision to end my life. I worked out how I was going to do it, when I was going to do it. I was just a week or so away from ending my life and I'm sitting at home and of all shows, I'm watching Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> Oprah saved my life. It wasn't Dr. Phil. It was Oprah. And, and on the show, daytime television, Oprah had guests on her show, I remember about five, and they'd all died for like one minute, two minutes, three minutes. They'd flatline. And they were there to talk about what happened in those few moments. And, it was very new age and they all talked about a beautiful white tunnel and no mention of God or Jesus. And they sort of went in and came out and I was only half watching thinking what a lot of rubbish because that's not what I saw. And then a man in the crowd at the end of the, the, the show, he puts his hand up and he says, Oprah, can I share my story? It's very different. She says, you've got two minutes. He was an American. He was a college professor. He taught, he's about 55. He talked about the fact that he was a staunch atheist, which means he believed 100% there is no God. He was traveling through Europe. He had a perforation in his intestines. They exploded. He was rushed to a European hospital. And while on the operating table, he flatlined for about three minutes. He was clinically dead. He said on Oprah to his shock, because he was such a staunch atheist, he couldn't believe it. But his spirit and soul left his body. And he was hovering above the ceiling. And he was watching the doctors operate on his open stomach. He then said these beings came to meet him and they started to take him away from where his body was. He said, the further we got, you got to understand, he's clinically dead. By human standards, he's a good person. But they're taking him away. He says, the further we got away, I started to realize these beings weren't nice. They began to mock me, to laugh at me, to tease me. He said, they began to beat me. And then he said something that rocked my world. He said, they turned into these demon creatures and they began to rip my soul apart. 
And then he said something that saved my life. He's clinically dead. Demons are ripping his soul apart. He said, I was just about no more. And a voice on the inside said, ask God for help. And for the first time in his life, he prayed his very first prayer. While he was clinically dead, demons ripping his soul apart, he said, God, if you're real, can you help me out of this situation? And at that moment, he woke up on the operating table and on Oprah Winfrey, he gave glory to Jesus Christ who had rescued and saved him. It was at that moment that I realized the answer to my question where I received such a demonic answer, but it was in that moment I realized the reason I didn't die that night is because there was a God in heaven whose name was Jesus, who was full of love, who loved me and had a plan for my life. I'm just about done. See, but what I've come to realize is that truth that helped me so much, a little part of it's a half truth. I mean, without a doubt, that day I realized who the real God was. And then He's a God of love. But if my theology says that the reason I didn't die is because God loved me and had a plan for my life. If that's my theology, you've got to ask the question, how come drug addicts die every single day without the love of God? How come mums and dads, people in retirement homes, die every single minute of every day without the love of God? Doesn't God love them? Doesn't God have a plan for them? The Bible says He does. And see, what I've become convinced of is that the only reason that I'm standing here in the flesh in Salt Lake City, the only reason that 25 years ago I didn't just become a little article in the local paper that would have talked about another young boy that was lost in the battle of addiction. The only reason that today I'm not just a photo on my mother's mantelpiece that would have been my prom ball photo in my ugly green suit and way too much gel in my hair. And 25 years later, people have walked into my mum's house and they would have saw the old photo and they would have said, who's the boy? And my mum with a tear in her eye would have talked about her boy who was a good kid. But one night he took a drug and we never got to see him again. See, the only reason that I'm here in the flesh, the only reason that I'm not that article. The only reason that I'm not that photo is because I had one of the Lord's army that stood before heaven and continued to stand before Jesus and say, don't you forget my nephew, Lucas Connell. He's going to be a giant killer. Hey, Father, I know it's been 10 years. I know I've been knocking, but don't you forget my nephew, Lucas Connell. He's going to be a giant killer. See, my question for you today is who will you carry to the table? See, remember I said that my auntie did these three things and Jesus sort of does? My auntie came down to where I was at, so does Jesus. My auntie embarrassed me with generosity, so does Jesus. My auntie stood in the gap and prayed for my salvation. Jesus didn't. See, the Bible says Jesus intercedes for the saints. But he's banking on the fact that the saints would be so moved by the love he has for us 
that we would push apathy to the side, that we would not just be consumed by materialistic living, that we would turn up at 5.30 in the morning and storm the gates of hell and stand in the gap that I've been so transformed that I'm here, Father, to pray for so-and-so. Who are you carrying? Who will you not judge but go down to where they're at? Who will you use your resource to show them the love of Jesus? And who are you standing in the gap and pray for? I'm going to pray into that in just a moment. At the end of the service, when we finish, I'm going to pray for people for freedom. But before I do that, I wonder if you're in this place today and you've never, ever given your life to Jesus. Like me, I think it's almost 20 years ago. It was the first time I surrendered my life to Jesus. If you're in this place and you've never, ever done that before, in just a moment, I'm going to count to three. And if you're saying, Lucas, I've never done that, and today I want to do that. I want to invite Jesus into my life for the first time. In just a moment, I want to be able to pray for you. But also I want to pray for another group of people at the same time. Maybe you're here and you've done this before. But for whatever reason, you've found yourself away from God. And today you're not going to give your life to Jesus for the first time. But today's the day you're drawing a line in the sand. And you're saying, God, I'm giving you my life. You know, you might be sitting here thinking, Lucas, if you knew how far away I was from God, let me tell you the furthest you can ever be from God is one sentence. One sentence that says, God, I'm sorry for I've ended up. Come and live in my life. So right now with every eye closed, every head bowed, I'm going to count to three. And if that's you today, you're either giving your life to Jesus for the first time or you're recommitting because you know you're away from God. When I get to three, you'll lift your hand nice and high. I'll see it. I'll include you in a prayer. Every eye closed, every head bowed. One. Friend, I tell you, He loves you more than you've ever dreamed or imagined. Two, it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, or who you are. You're God's precious son or precious daughter. Three, all over this place. Come on, lift your hand over. Yeah, I see your hand there. Yeah, come on, I see your hand there. I see your hand there. I see your hand there. So good, so good, so good. It's hard for me to see, but yeah, I see your hand there. I see your hand there. I see your hand there. Three people, I think, so far. Right at the back, so I see your hand there. I see your hand there. Young lady, I see your hand there. I see your hand there as well. So good, so good. I think there's about six or seven people. So come on, I feel like there's some, there's some more right now in this place. Come on, draw a line in the sand today. Draw a line in the sand today. And say, so I'm not going to keep living the way that I've been living. I'm stepping into what God has for my life. So good. So proud of each one of you. I don't know. There's about seven people. I'm going to ask every person in the room. We're just about done. We're going to dismiss everyone in just a second. But I'm going to ask everyone to stand to their feet for a moment. And, and I want to be able to pray for each one of you that lifted your hand. Because I want you to encounter the Holy Spirit. But if that's you right now, if you lifted your hand, if you want to bring someone with you, that's totally cool. It's not to embarrass you. You don't need to face the crowd. I want you to come down, meet me. I want to shake your hand. We've got a great book for you as well. That's going to really help you in your journey. But more than that, I want to be able to pray for you. So if you lifted your hand, awesome people already coming. Just quickly come right now. Quickly come. Let's cheer, church. Hey, if you didn't lift your hand, but you know you should have, then you just come as well. Hey, good on you. So proud of you. So good. So good. Come on, keep cheering. Come on, people are coming. So proud. Come on. If you lifted your hand, then quickly come. Don't miss this moment. Don't miss this moment. Come on, it's a powerful moment. Oh, come on, Jesus. 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 
So good. Hey, God bless you. So good, so good. Isn't that beautiful to see dads and daughters and so many people right now? Come on, will you reach out your hands? And uh, if you're at the front right now, so many tears. It's The reason there's tears is because what we're talking about is real. You're not coming to me. You're coming to a father that's crazy about you, that loves you deeply. So I want each one of you at the front just to pray this prayer. Say, dear father, we're all going to pray with you as a family. Say, dear father. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. Forgive me for everything I've done wrong. I thank you that I am forgiven. Today, I give you my life. I invite you into my heart. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just reach out your hands once, church. I want to pray quickly. Father, I thank you so much for each of these precious ones. God, that you would come so real to them that the Holy Spirit would literally invade their life, that they would know when they put their head on the pillow tonight that they are sons and daughters of the Most High God, that they are washed clean, that they are holy, that they are righteous, that all of their sin is washed away in the name of Jesus, that they have been adopted as children of God, that they will walk with you all the days of their life, that you'll always be in their corner. Father, I thank you so much for this incredible, wonderful, wonderful group of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, guys, which way are we going? Hey, just for the guys at the front, we're just, this is a beautiful lady right here. What's your name again? Cynthia. She, we've got a book and, and, a, and a Bible, but a really cool book that's going to help you follow Jesus. It's called Following Jesus. And that's going to help you a lot. And then also, if you need prayer for anything, these guys can pray for you as well. So if you don't mind, if you could follow Cynthia, just out to the side. You just be gone for about one minute, two minutes. And we want to get that book in your hand. We're so proud of every one of you. Come on, church. Let's give it up. Let's give it up for these incredible people. I'm going to be really quick. Lift your hands to heaven right now. Father, I thank you that you've called all of us to do the work of the evangelist. You've called us to bring people in, Father. I thank you for this house becoming a trophy room of your grace. Father, I pray that you'd give us a heart. Give us your heart for people that don't yet know you, Father. Let there never, ever be a week in Salt Lake City where people aren't surrendering their lives to Jesus. God, use us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name. I'm going to hand over right now. I want to say God bless you. Hey, uh, you know, if you feel like there's an area of your life where you don't feel free, I wanna, I'm going to be down here after the service and I want to stand with you. I've seen a lot of people get free of things like anxiety, depression, addictions, uh, whatever it might be. No judgment here. But uh, I'm going to be down over here or somewhere down the front. So just hang around after the service. I'd love to pray for you. God bless you. Thanks so much. Thanks.